Well, good morning to each of you here in the auditorium and those watching online. We hope you're participating with us and not just uh, viewing as it were. Uh, as Mara said, this is the um, fourth message on family matters. And then Lord willing, next Sunday will be the final message. And then we'll be glad all of us when Pastor Rob comes back to the pulpit the first uh, Sunday in September. Now, if you're one that likes to follow along in your copy of God's Word, Genesis 29 is going to be our uh, chapter this morning, Genesis chapter 29, where we find the original love triangle in the Bible. You've got Jacob, you've got Leah, and then you have Leah's sister, Rachel. The question I want you to think about this morning for just a moment or so is what do you do if you think you married the wrong person? Now, I'm going to ask a question that, that I want no response to. For those of you married, how many of you have had a thought in your marriage, you know, I think I married the wrong person. I would venture to say, if you're honest, everyone would say, yep, the thought did occur to me. Usually in an argument, usually in a downtime, whatever, just a fleeting thought, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what if you're sitting there and you're, you're looking back and you say, as I put it all together as a Christian, uh, I'm pretty much convinced I married the wrong person. Let me give you some thoughts to think about. Maybe as you look back to your premarital days and when you got married, you didn't even know the Lord. So if I asked you, did you consult God? Did you ask for his will? Did you ask for his guidance? You said, I wasn't even thinking about that at that time. All I knew is I was in love and I felt this was the person and we got married. Uh, some of you may say, well, I did grow up in a Christian home and I did learn some principles about courtship, marriage, but really, time I got up toward high school, college, university, whatever, I just kind of set that aside and I did my own thing. In fact, as a believer, I even became unequally yoked. I married an unbeliever. And that was clearly in violation of scriptural principles. For those of you who go back quite a few years like me, and you're looking back 40 or 50 years ago, back in that day, if uh, the girl got pregnant, then, quote unquote, you had to get married. And it was the honorable thing for the man to do back in the 50s, the 60s, that if his girlfriend, uh, they had relationships and she got pregnant, then it was expected that you would marry that person. As you look back, you say, the Lord certainly wasn't in that. Others of you have been married and you've been divorced and you've been remarried. And for some, you've been divorced again. Who will be your husband or wife in the kingdom of God is what you're kind of asking. But the real question is, what about the person you're married to today? Did I marry the wrong person? And if I did, if I'm really convinced I did, everything was just violated in the Bible, then what do you expect me to do about it? What should I do if I'm convinced I married the wrong person? So in Genesis 29, we meet Jacob, Leah, and Rachel. But let's remember what brought us to this point, because it's crucial to understanding chapter 29. Years before, Jacob's grandfather was a man by the name of Abraham. He lived up in Ur of the Chaldees. He was a pagan, 
And God supernaturally reached down, revealed himself to him, and he called him. He said, I'm going to make a promise to you. It's an unconditional promise. I'm going to do it. And a couple of those promises were, I'm going to make a great nation of you. You look at all the stars in the sky. Your seed's going to be more than them. Look all the sand on the, on the seashore. It's going to be more than them. It's going to be multiplied. A great, great nation. We know that nation of Israel. But the greatest blessing is not only a national one, it's a universal one. In thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Through your seed and through your lineage, there's going to be a man who is going to be born and that person is going to be the Messiah, and he's going to provide forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation uh, for the entire world and those who believe upon his name. Now, in order for that to happen, for him to have a seed, then obviously he needs to get married and he needs to have a son. Well, Abraham and Sarah were married, but uh, they're getting mighty old, up toward 100, and there's still no child. And then God visited them and says, you're going to have a son. Uh, Sarah laughed at him, at, at the spokesman of God, and uh, said, why did you laugh? It was a laugh of unbelief, though Sarah was a woman of faith. But at that time, it was a laugh of unbelief. So they had a son in their very old age, and they named him Isaac, which means laughter. Every Hebrew name is always chosen with a significance in mind. And so Isaac's name uh, was reflecting upon Sarah's unbelief of what God could do. So Isaac's born, and now he's the seed. In thee shall all nations believe love, and that is in thy seed Isaac. So now Isaac's going to be the next one to uh, have a son in that line. And uh, now Isaac's getting to be 40 years old. Uh, he hasn't been married yet, so he hasn't had a son yet. And Abraham realizes it's time. He sends uh, his chief servant, Eleazar, says, go back to your homeland. There's going to be some believers up there and procure a, a wife for Isaac. And God led the angel of the Lord was president. And everything you see, it was God's will uh, that Rebecca would be the woman who would marry Isaac. And so they got married. And now in his seed, that's who the Messiah is going to come through. Well, they go through what we'd call today infertility and then went through 20 years of it. And so now, instead of 40 years old, Isaac's 60 years old. And, uh, and God then uh, allowed uh, Rebecca to get pregnant and she was pregnant with twins. And while the twins were in her womb, the Lord revealed to uh, Rebecca that there's going to be a little change from what is normal. And the promise is this, you're going to have the seed, but the elder person, firstborn, who's normally going to be the person of the blessing, the firstborn shall serve the younger, which in that case was Jacob. And so it was God's way of saying it's going to be a little different. And now the seed is not Esau, the seed is going to be Jacob. As we saw last week, it appears that Rebekah never shared that news, as she should have with Isaac, because they had drifted apart, in my understanding, weren't communicating. If Isaac's going to be quiet, he's not going to talk to me good. I'll keep quiet, too, can play that game. So she never told him. And Isaac never knew that, uh, that Jacob was the one of blessing, not Esau. So all of a sudden, it looks like he's just about ready to die. It says he can't see very well, and he calls his son Esau who he's father and son latched on together. And they were hunters. They liked to be outside in the wilderness together. And he says, uh, fix me some venison. And then after I eat the venison, he says, I'm going to put the patriarchal blessing upon you. 
And so meanwhile, now keep in mind, he's still thinking the will of God, his firstborn Esau, is going to be the seed of blessing. Meanwhile, Rebekah is uh, standing at the tent. She hears what he's saying. She immediately goes to Jacob, and they conspire together this deceptive plan whereby they dress Esau, uh, except Jacob up as Esau, make him smell like Esau, and everything about him is Esau. And Jacob goes in and asks for the blessing after they gave him some of the venison stew Rebecca made. And then uh, uh, Isaac's a little bit suspicious, troubled, but he feels and it's hairy, just like Esau has hairy arms and he smells like him and everything else. And so he blesses him. Well, shortly after that, Esau comes back in from the field. And uh, of course, now the story's unveiled. Uh, he didn't bless Esau. He blessed Jacob, who deceived him along with his wife, uh, Rebecca. But the interesting thing, he says, yes, he says, I've blessed him, and he shall be blessed. So he saw God's providential hand in it, sovereign hand, that Rebekah had never shared with him, Jacob's the line of the blessing, and so he gives the blessing under deceit to Jacob, but he recognized God was in control and sovereignly and providentially planned it, and he says, and he shall be blessed. Well, obviously, when Esau gets back in and he hears what's happened, he's enraged, and so he does one thing in his mind. He's going to murder his brother Jacob. He's going to kill him. And Rebecca kept, catches that as well. So she goes in to see Isaac and she says, you know, we got to get Jacob out of here. He's going to be the seed. He's going to be the one through whom the nation, the, uh, the Messiah comes. And uh, Esau's going to try to kill him. So we got to send him back up to our homeland, up to Haran, 500 miles away, up to where there are believers. Because we, we, it'll break my heart. It'll kill me if he marries a Canaanite woman or an believer and so uh, they get this plan together and then they send uh, Jacob on up uh, on up to Haran now on the way to Haran Jacob stops and uh, he's sleeping and putting his head on a pillow a rock for a pillow and all of a sudden he has this phenomenal dream and in that dream God is unveiling to him that this promise he gave to his grandfather Abraham and gave to his father Isaac, he's now going to be the recipient of it. And he is the Abrahamic covenant reconfirmed uh, to him. And so uh, Jacob sees angels ascending up into heaven on a ladder. If you put that together with John chapter 1, verse 50, you'll find out that ladder was Christ himself. That's another story, another message. But uh, God then blesses Jacob, confirms to him the covenant with these words, Genesis 28, 13. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring, and in your offspring shall all families of the earth be blessed. Now, Rebecca then, uh, Rebecca, Jacob gets up then, he goes up to Haran, he finally arrives, he's dead tired, it's been a long 500 miles on, on Camelback, and that's what brings us uh, to Genesis chapter 29. Now I'm going to read a lengthy portion here because it's got to give you the overall picture of what we're going to be looking at. So do the best to follow along with me either in your scriptures or on the screen. Verses 1 to 20, Genesis 29. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field. Behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well, the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and the water of the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. So Jacob says to them, brothers, why do you come? Where do you come from? They said, we come from Haran. Good news, right? He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, yeah, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it's very well with him. 
And look up, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We can't do that until all the flocks are gathered together. The stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. Pretty big rock, massive rock, kind of like one that would have guarded the tomb of Jesus. Well, while I was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near, and he rolled the stone. Isn't, isn't the influence of a woman a powerful thing? What normally took several shepherds to roll, this little Jacob guy, he gets pretty strong, doesn't he? He comes there. Why did he do that? Why did he, he want to get rid of the shepherds? Why did he do that? Wasn't there a song a few years ago, he's a smooth operator? Well, that's Jakey. He's a smooth operator. He sees Rachel coming, and he wants time alone with her. Anyway, he comes, he rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel pretty bold, and he wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman, that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran, and she told her father. Man, everything's just moving fast. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet. He embraced Jacob and he kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. Laban said unto him, sure, you're my bone and my flesh. He stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I'll serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban says, notice he doesn't say yes. Notice he doesn't agree. What he does say, it's better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. Talk about a smooth operator. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Now, let's move through this text, and I'm just going to give you three very simple points that might help you follow along. First of all, we talk about the discovery of Rachel. And so what we've read here is he gets to the well, the shepherds are all sitting around, the discussion begins. Not only do they know Laban, but here comes his daughter Rachel with the sheep. And as Rachel gets closer and closer, Remember, Jacob's looking for a wife. As Rachel gets closer and closer, he just can't believe his eyes. I mean, if there was ever love at first sight, this was it. Confession time. I walked into campus. I had my friend with me, Sami Kanani, converted Muslim from Iraq. I looked across the dining room. I saw a young lady sitting there. Never met her before. Didn't know who she was. I said, Sammy, there's the woman I'm going to marry someday. You say, where'd that come from? I don't have a clue. You say, well, it's all about I don't know. But it happened. And she's sitting over here 54 years later. But anyway, that was just a strange, I don't even know why I said that. It kind of doesn't matter. But anyway, uh, Rachel gets closer and closer, and it's love at first sight. I mean, he is just totally smitten. Verse 17 says, Leah's eyes were weak. Now, the word weak there doesn't just mean she couldn't see very well. That's not what it means. If you check with the, the Hebrew and what most Hebrew scholars say, it has to do with something that's kind of unsightly, something you wouldn't want to look upon. That's the idea behind not just weak, she couldn't see well, but it was unsightly to look upon. So Leah was obviously not someone too favored with physical beauty. And in contrast uh, to Leah, she has a sister, but it says, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Now, the Hebrew word translated form 
means exactly what you think it means. It means she had an hourglass figure. It means she was absolutely a knockout in every way. When she walked in the door, all eyes turned toward uh, Rachel. And then, in contrast, you have Leah. Well, Jacob's overwhelmed. Immediately, the word spreads to the family members. And now all the family gets excited. Laban gets excited. Everyone's excited. Surely, surely, this is the will of God. And they invite him to stay for a month. Or is it the will of God? Well, as we read, read in verses 16 and 18, Laban wanted Jacob to work for him. And the financial negotiation began. And you may recall that back in those days, as well as today in the Middle East, North Africa, over in Asia, a dowry is expected to be paid. So if you as a man want to marry a young lady, you would make a payment, a financial payment of some kind and order to the father of the bride. And that's the only way you were going to get her to marry you. And it's done today as well. Now, so Laban says, well, what are you going to work for? And Jacob says this. He says, I'll work seven years for you. And at the end of the seven years, then I get uh, Rachel as my wife. Now, if you put all that together in the average dowry back there, in the average year of wages, which we don't have time to go into, let me just say this. The money was a lot more than what was the average dowry. You get the idea? The idea is kind of like when you're out buying a house and then this housing market, all the houses are being sold fast. Someone comes in and high balls it. Why? They don't want to lose the house even if they pay $25,000 more for it. And that's happening in our day and age. And that's where Jacob's thinking is. I don't want to lose this gal. So he worked seven years for her. And such was Jacob's immediate love for Rachel. Now, I think we can agree that the words of chapter 29, verse 20, are some of the most beautiful words ever penned about a man's love for a woman. Listen to these words. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Hey, wives, how would you like a husband love you like that? Seven years, just a few days. Now that brings us to the second point, which is the devotion of Jacob. He's discovered Rachel, now his devotion, verses 15 to 20. Now it's obvious, at least from the text, that Jacob has this great love for Rachel. Keep in mind, Jacob's life is basically empty at this point. He was a mama's boy, always spent time with mama in the kitchen. Esau was out in the field with Isaac. And he and his mom just had this kind of relationship inseparable. But now he doesn't have his mama. His dad never did love him. And so that's not even in the picture. He's got a twin brother and he's out to try to murder him, to kill him. And so all that is, is coming together as well. He's on the run as a fugitive. He's lost everything. And then along comes Rachel. And he's totally smitten. And I'm wondering, conjecturing, that maybe Jacob didn't think, you know, with all this void in my life, Rachel will fill that void and all the needs of my heart for purpose and fulfillment in life, plus being the seed of the one who will come to be the Messiah is going to be met by Rachel. So it seems apparent to me that Jacob is convinced Rachel is the woman God has chosen to be his wife. But anytime things move so fast, like we've seen in this story today, it ought to at least cause concern or pause. True, he went to his mother's household just like he was told. He went up to Haran. True, as soon as he gets up there, he strikes the uh, conversation with shepherds. 
and everything just seems to be flowing. Yep, the family's up there, uh, her, her brother's up there, everything is just coming together. He no sooner gets into conversation and along comes, uh, along comes Rachel, most gorgeous thing alive. And he is totally enthralled with her. He's totally uh, immersed with her. And so Rachel comes. And then even the family gets involved. And as we saw last week, one of the principles we want is parental blessing. And sure enough, here's parental blessing. All that's coming together. And it looks like surely this is the will of God. But if you take some more time and read it carefully, and I've had the benefit of a few weeks of reading, reading, rereading over time and again, you'll find that something's missing there that you'd like to see when you discern the will of God. You'd like to see at least something mentioned about prayer, not a mention. You'd like to see something about when, when uh, Eleazar was getting a bride for Isaac that the angel of the Lord went before him saying, and the word of the Lord came to him saying, you'd like some kind of message from the Lord through word, uh, through confirmation in prayer or something to confirm that this is indeed the will of God. Circumstances are important. I think they're part of discerning God's will for your life. But if I were to make Four or five points, how to discern the will of God. If I preached a message on that someday, I guarantee you circumstances would be at the bottom of the list. It would be the least important. And yet here, it seems to me that it seems to be the most important. We've talked about being attracted physically as Jacob was to Rachel. There's nothing wrong with that. I can't imagine of people who get married or start dating each other in our culture or according that aren't somewhat attracted. I mean, you don't just find somebody and say, boy, that's about the worst looking person I've ever seen. Can't spend, can't wait to spend the rest of my life with that person. No one that. So you find someone, you're attracted to him. And hopefully it goes beyond the physical and it goes to the emotional, to the personality, and of course, to the spiritual. So when a relationship is based on physical attraction alone, then it doesn't make for a strong foundation. There's going to be a lot of problems if that's the case. Just ask Hollywood. Now, while I agree that Jacob's attraction initially uh, was there, and it was based physically on appearance, I think through those seven years of work, and it's just conjecture, can't prove it, but I think it grew into a deep and more of a, what you and I would call a self-giving kind of love for Rachel. You say, well, Harry, why do you say that? And one reason, one reason only. Have you ever noticed that the one, one of the great tests of love is love can always wait. Lust can never wait to get. Love can always wait. Lust says, I want you and I want you now. And I don't want to wait for that. Jacob waits seven years a pretty long time to be waiting. Now, I know when two people make up their mind to get married, there's almost nothing that can change their minds. You were there too, right? Once your mind was weighed up, it was your bent on getting married. Dear friend of mine, my best friend in life who's with the Lord now, he used to say three things when a man decides to do, you're not going to change his mind. When he decides to buy a car, when he decides to get drunk, and when he decides to get married, not going to change his mind. I don't know if that's true or not. You don't have to step to the platter on that one. But I do know this. Love can always 
wait. So when two people make up their mind to get married, there's not going to be much to change their mind, but we've got to be careful. Well, he's moving away, so we've got to get married. Well, you know, we're a sophomore in college, and two years is a long time for graduation. He went in the Army, and, you know, he might be sent overseas, and it's a long time to wait. Or, you know, what if I lose him or her? You know, I better secure the deal while it's there. Better get married rather than take the chance of losing. And I'm sure many of you here have done that very thing. If you look back to where you were when you got married, perhaps some of you did that. But what we do know is Jacob's love was so great, he was willing to wait for seven years. Lust can never wait. Love can always wait. Now let's move to the final point, point three, the deception of Jacob. This gets to the heart of the matter. This is really... It says, verses 31 to 35, my mistake is 21 to 25. Now, most of us know this story, but I want you to try to meditate, visualize, uh, experience it, whatever the right word is, this deceptive scheme with Laban. But you're Jacob, so you're the one being deceived. And so Rachel's father is at the, the helm of this. Jacob has waited seven years. Now it's time for the wedding. Those are exciting days, aren't they? Leading up to that wedding day, <laughs> I can remember driving up to northern Maine, Prescott, Maine, couldn't wait to get, and I'm, <laughs> this is carnal, but I remember praying the day before, Lord, I really long for your returning the rapture, but could you just wait until next week, you know, so we can get married and have our honeymoon. Okay, enough of that. Verse 21, 25, Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her. How crass is that? How inappropriate is that? I mean, it says exactly what it says. There's nothing added there. And did you know Jewish rabbi scholars have skirted all around this for centuries because they can't make a proper understanding out? There is no proper understanding. It's just plain crass. For my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and he brought her to Jacob and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, Jacob wakes up. It was Leah. Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? What then have you done to me? Now, Jacob gets through the presentation of the bride. It's the long flowing gown. Her face was very heavily veiled, so you wouldn't be able to make out uh, who it was behind the dark veil. If it was according to the custom of the day, normally the wine is flowing pretty heavily and Jacob is inebriated by the time he gets to the tent. And then they go off to the dark tent. The marriage is consummated. But can you imagine Jacob's feelings when he wakes up after working seven years and he looks over and instead of seeing gorgeous, beautiful Rachel, there's bleary-eyed Leah. And just imagine the stabbing in his heart. I never think of this story that I don't think of the TV show. Some of you who are my age remember seeing back in the 1950s starring William Bendix. It was called The Life of Raleigh. And every episode always had one thing that happened and transpired that was not supposed to happen. And then there was the same punchline every week, but you just never, you were waiting for it. You didn't know it's going to come the beginning, the middle, the end of the show or whatever. But then when this would happen, 
When sooner or later Bendix was caught into a situation that wasn't supposed to be, he'd come out afterwards and say, what a revolting development this is. I think he got that from Jacob that morning when he woke up and thought to himself, what a revolting development this is. So who can imagine the ache of heart? Who can imagine? I've often wondered, why didn't he kill him? Who can imagine the anger you would feel that would just surge within to think you have been so deceived, so manipulated, so wrong, trying to do what's right, and you're working far beyond the dowry, and then this is done to you. And Laban simply says in verse 26, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the first one. By the way, if you go back there, he never said that he would give her uh, Rachel to her after seven years. As Rob preached a year ago, remember, maybe you don't, but uh, Jacob met his match in Laban. Jacob was a deceitful man, but he's met his match. Kind of reminds you of what goes around, comes around, whatever a man sows, that shall he also be reaped. Verse 30b says, he served, agreed to serve another seven years for Rachel. Verse 30b says, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served Laban for another seven years. Now it's going to be 14 years. Jacob had to think what goes around comes around. Remember, Jacob was mama's boy, and with her help, both of them deceived his father, Isaac. And now father-in-law and wife have deceived him. So he now realizes what it's like to be manipulated and deceived. So he decides to work for another seven years. Now, there's not much said uh, in most books, commentaries about Leah. Usually you hear Jacob and Rachel, Jacob and Rachel, Jacob and Rachel. But my heart goes out to, to Leah personally. Leah was unattractive. Only those who are unattractive and maybe have to grow up in a home where somebody, a sibling, is so beautiful or so handsome, and you live in the shadow of that, can you identify maybe with Leah? Laban, her father, knew no one was going to marry her. Who in the world is going to give money for a dowry to marry bleary-eyed Leah, unattractive. Jacob gave him that opportunity. So the girl that daddy doesn't want deceitfully gives her away to a husband who doesn't want her either. She's the nobody that nobody wanted. She has a hollow in her heart every bit, maybe larger than the space in Jacob's heart. And what you're seeing week after week, as much as when I started this series, I was looking for models of families that we can emulate. Every family is screwed up and messed up to the hilt, full of deception, full of lies, full of lust, full of hypocrisy. They're all messed up, every one of them. And we come to this and we just see it gets passed on from one generation and gets passed on to another generation. So daddy gives her away and the husband doesn't want her either. So in this patriarchal society, 
What would you do as a wife to maybe try to win the love of your husband? And no woman should ever have to try to win the love of her husband. If you're that guy and she's married to you, shame on you. You love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. But in this patriarchal society, Leah's thinking, I'm hated. He loves Rachel. Is there any way? Now, she had to think, why is Jacob getting married? The seed. The seed of the Messiah. The seed by which the nation of Israel is going to be born. Maybe I can make that provision. So she has children. And as you know, in the Hebrew... When they named a child, the name was always full of significance and meaning. You just didn't name it because it was a nice name or a common name. You named it because there was significance attached to it. So let's look at him. First of all, there's Reuben. And Reuben comes about in verses 31 and 32. It says, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, by the way, the word there merely means, better translation is rejected. That is, it's always a word of comparison. Remember, Jesus said, if you don't hate your mother and father, you can't be my disciple. He doesn't mean you want you to hate your parents. He means that you have to reject sometimes their counsel in order to follow the Lord. So in comparison to Rachel, Leah was hated or Leah was re rejected. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. You see, Reuben means to see. And surely now my husband sees me. Maybe I won't be invisible any longer. Did you ever see the film or the Broadway show Chicago? It's got great music in it. But there's one psalm kind of toward the end, and it's sung by what, you, what the world would call a nobody. I mean, just, uh, you know, he's not too bright. He just, he just kind of a, what the world would say is a loser. We don't use that word as Christians. And so then, through a series of things, he sings a song, and it's called Cellophane, remember? Mr. Cellophane. Ah, that should have been my name, Mr. Cellophane. Why, you can see right through me and walk right by me. You'll never know my name, dum, 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 Cellophane. Okay, uh, a wannabe, right? Now, that's Leah. That is Leah. Cellophane, he just sees through me, walks right by. No one even knows my name. So she has another child. His name's Simeon, verse 33. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Simeon, the name means not to see like Reuben, but it means to hear. Now with two sons, maybe I'll get my beloved's ear. Maybe he'll start listening to me and we'll start conversing together. But he didn't. Verse 34 reveals a third son. She conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. Levi means attached. Now Levi comes. Now we'll be knit together in love. We'll be attached. Do you see what Leah's doing? She's trying to get her husband to love her, but it's not working. 
And every single day, the message comes through loud and clear. Jacob loved Rachel, but hated Leah. Imagine living with that. But God did a work of grace in her heart, seen in the birth of the fourth son, Verse 35, she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Judah means what? Judah means praise. I love it when Leah says this time. I mean, she got it right now. She finally got it right. This time, no mention of Jacob, no mention of the child. This time was the time to praise the Lord, period. Tim Keller puts it together beautifully. Jacob and Leah had stolen Leah's life. But when she stopped giving her heart to a good thing that she had turned into an ultimate thing and gave it to the Lord, she got her life back. May I respectfully ask you, what are you giving your life to? What good thing in your life, what good thing in your life are you treating as your ultimate thing? What you need to do is stop giving your heart to any one of those things until you give your heart totally to the Lord, and then you get your life back. Spouse won't do it. Child won't do it. Five children won't do it. Climb up the corporate ladder won't bring it. More money, more things won't buy it. It's ultimately Christ is everything. Pascal said it well. There's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the creator made known through Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis supports it in mere Christianity. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Indeed, we were, weren't we? We're foreigners, we're sojourners, we're pilgrims. We're made for another world. We started out asking the question, what to do if you married the wrong person? I'm going to answer that, and then we're done in a few minutes. But let me suggest to you why I think Leah was in the ideal situation, God's choice of one woman for one man for a lifetime. That's the ideal, one woman, one man for a lifetime. Let me suggest you why I think Leah was God's choice and not Rachel. The relationship, number one, with Rachel was palsy based on physical attraction. God was never consulted. Two, God providentially overruled with Laban's deceit, and Jacob should have remembered how his father responded when he says, yes, I blessed him, and he shall be blessed. He should have recognized that same thing with the deceit put upon him by God's providential hand. Three, one of Leah's children, Levi, he becomes the priestly line for Israel. But more importantly, the fourth son, Judah, that means praise. Judah would be the seed of the Messiah. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ called what? The lion out of the tribe, what? Of Judah. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, Jesus. If you go number four to Israel, Sometime, and we could go there down to Hebron, which we haven't been able to do for the last 20, 30 years because of the danger. But there in Hebron, there's a place called Machpelah, and that's where you find three pillars and tombs. Guess who you find there? Right here, got Abraham and Sarah. 
Right here, where they're buried, Isaac and Rebekah. Guess who's buried in the third one? Jacob and Leah. You say, well, where in the world's Rachel? She's up outside of Bethlehem, about two miles outside on the way to Jerusalem. I don't know, it's not a strong argument, but is it just God's way of even historically saying through the years, Leah was the right person for Jacob? Now, you've noticed in these last four weeks, every home's messed up. Sin has entered the world. There was one perfect marriage and one perfect marriage only. And that was Adam and Eve. And then they messed everything up. Then you had the fall. But it was perfect before then. But after that, it's downhill all the way. If you're looking for a model marriage in the Bible, forget it. Because the people there are just like you. And the homes there are just like your home. It's a messed up mess. That's what it is. And it's only by God's grace when things are made right. And then we get back into the original intention that God had. Guess what you did? In answer to the question, did you marry the wrong person? I save it for the last because now you can't walk out on me because the message is done anyway. Yeah, you married the wrong person. I couldn't get my wife to confess to that last night, but I was kind of glad. We all married the wrong person. What do I mean by that? The right person would be who? Adam and Eve. Who would be the right person? It would be the person you are totally compatible with in every way, physically, emotionally, spiritually. It is perfection. There is no sin. There's no selfishness. There's no greed. There's nothing. There's just perfect harmony. So ever since that perfect marriage, everything else is imperfect. Yeah, I know you prayed about it. You did the best. We all do the best we can. But I'm just saying that in a little bit of a exaggerated sense, every person has married the wrong person because no two people are totally compatible and we have to work on it and we have to be the people God wants us to be. So what's the moral lesson today? Gives us a picture of the Bible, gives us a picture of a totally depraved people who don't seek the grace of God. He sought us. Who don't deserve the grace of God once they get it who don't appreciate the grace of God after they get it, who continue to abuse the grace of God after they got it, and yet the grace just keeps coming on and on and on, and we are so glad, aren't we, that God is so gracious to each person here, to every family, to every couple, and in spite of sin, where abounds, grace does much more abound. Now, if you haven't gotten it through your head yet, get it today. Life's filled with one disappointment after another. And if you're not 100%, I didn't say 90, if you're not 100% focused and given over to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you will continue to be disappointed time and again. Oh, if I could just get married, no, I won't do it. If I could just have children, no, that's not going to satisfy. If I could just get the promotion, won't we'll do it. If I could, no, those things don't satisfy. God and God alone, Christ and Christ alone satisfy. Because if your focus is elsewhere, trust me, when you wake up in the morning, it's going to be Leah. You thought you went to bed with Rachel. You woke up with Leah. That happens every time when your focus is in the wrong place. Now, sometimes his will doesn't bring happiness or immediate happiness. But I want to tell you something else, a little strong word maybe. God's purpose in your life isn't to make you happy. 
I don't want to say you could care less about it, but in a sense, I want to say that just to get your attention. Happiness is not his goal for you. Conformity to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ is his goal, and that involves holiness, not happiness. And God is using us spouses and parents and children as iron sharpening iron to conform us to the image of Christ. So what, now that you know you married the wrong person, somebody told me if their husband walked out of them after this message, they were going to shoot me. So if you married the wrong person, what do you do? It's a simple answer. It is so simple. Don't wrestle with it. 1 Corinthians 7.20, Paul says this, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. There it is. You can't make up the past. You've been divorced, remarried, divorced. Can't make, you can't go back. All you can do is, here I am today. I'm going to remain in the calling in which I have been called. I'm going to recognize God's providential care of my life. I'm going to honor the commitment that I made. I'm going to give unconditional love and, and acceptance to my spouse. I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to fill me. I'm going to deny myself, and I'm going to fulfill God's will for my life. By his grace and his power shall we pray. Thank you, our Father. Thank you for the fact that the Bible doesn't paint over the failures of our people we love in our biblical history. And Lord, we just need your grace every day. We can't throw stones at them. We've got enough throw stones to throw at ourselves. So help our homes to be what you want it to be and our lives to be all that you want it to be as we yield to you. In Jesus' name, amen.